Well, our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26, um, verses 17 through 29 uh, in the pew Bibles that are uh, in the racks in front of you there. That's on page 832. So page 832 in the pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to read verses 17 through 29. Also, if you don't have a Bible of your own, if you're newer to church, um, you don't own a Bible, please take one of the Pew Bibles home with you. We'd love for everyone to have a copy of the scriptures uh, of their own to read and to study. So hear God's word. This is Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 29. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began saying to him one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said to them, drink of it all of you for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we prepare to look at this passage together, um, let's take a moment to pray and ask for God to speak to us afresh through it. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have not only spoken in the past, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, you continue to speak to us through your word. We pray now that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are open to being transformed by what you speak to us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning uh, just by asking you to, to consider a question. And that question is, what do these things, what do these things have in common? Royals games, birthday parties, weddings, funerals, anniversaries, retirement parties, graduations. What do, what do all of those things have in common? What connects those seemingly kind of disparate events together in one strand? If you think about it long enough, the one thing that every one of those events have in common is, is meals, food. They're all connected by the celebration of, of food or the eating of a meal as part of the event. Because you see, every significant moment in life, it comes with a meal. Every significant moment in life comes with a meal. Whenever we remember, whenever we celebrate, even when we mourn and lament, 
there's food. It's almost as if for us as people, it's not important until eating is involved. Which is why every single Sunday when we gather, we eat together. And, and no, I'm not just talking about the donut holes, um, though those are a really important part of, of a Sunday morning at Christ Community. Um, but we're talking about communion, the Lord's Supper, that every week as we gather, we share this meal together because every significant moment in life comes with a meal. And so when the Son of God comes to earth to die on the cross and rise again in three days in order to free humanity and indeed all of the created order from the curse of sin and death and evil, the most significant event of all time, we're given a meal. But it's a meal unlike any other. And really the the practice, the celebration of communion, the Lord's Supper, it's kind of a bizarre thing. I mean, a lot of us have come to church for, for a long time, and uh, even if you've come to Christ's community over a long time, it becomes routine, something we do. But if you stop to think about it, it's kind of an odd thing. We take a little piece of bread, or maybe if you're in another church or context, a, a wafer or a cracker, and you dip it into, you know, we use juice here, or maybe wine somewhere else, and then you eat, and then you go and sit back down. What is, why do Christians do this? Why all over the world Today, on Sunday, are there, there are literally hundreds of millions of Christians around the world, countries, different cultures, doing this thing of dipping bread into juice or wine, eating together. What does it mean? Well, that's what we're going to see this morning here in Matthew chapter 26. But we actually have to start way back in the story of the Bible to understand this moment in Matthew 26. Because the story of the Bible is in many ways a story about meals. And you can't understand the story of the Bible unless you understand its meals. So this morning, I want to walk you through, yes, in a a condensed fashion, but I want to walk you through the entire storyline of the Bible through the lens of meals. And what we're going to see as we take this journey together is that you are always invited to Jesus' table. You're always invited to come to Jesus' table. And as we walk through this story, we're going to see four reasons why we need communion as people, why we need the Lord's Supper. We need communion because we forget. We need communion because we're isolated. We need communion to believe Jesus' invitation. And we need communion, finally, to anticipate. So we need communion because we forget because we're isolated. We need it in order to believe the invitation, and we need it in order to anticipate. So first, we need communion because we forget, or, or maybe because we've never known in the first place. Maybe you're here this morning, and this is your first time at church uh, ever, or in a long time, and you may say, Bill, I don't have anything to forget yet. Um, but we need communion because we forget, because we need to remember, because maybe for the first time, we need to learn You see, in this moment in Jesus' life, when he gathers with his disciples to eat this Passover meal, which we'll get to what that's all about in a moment, that supper, that meal has been thousands of years in the making. Listen again to how Matthew recounts these these events beginning in verse 17. He writes, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, 
explain what that feast is in just a moment. The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover, this meal? Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, this feast of unleavened bread that Matthew mentions at the very beginning of this text was a seven-day Jewish festival that was celebrated in the spring. And the high point of that festival was the celebration of the Passover meal. And this is a meal that Jesus would have celebrated uh, his entire life as a Galilean Jew. In fact, he had probably celebrated this meal with his disciples the, the, the three years that they were together. It was essential practice. Like I said, the celebration of that meal had been something that God's people had been doing um, since the time that they were rescued from Egypt, from their slavery there. But that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in the story already because we have to go back even further than the Exodus moment to understand the story of meals in the Bible. We have to go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, to the very first pages of the Bible, to Genesis, the story of creation itself. Because the Bible starts with a story about food. You turn to probably most of any Bible, you turn to probably page two in your Bible. Genesis chapter two, verses 16 through 17, this is what we find you may surely eat. It starts off with a command to eat. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now often we tend to focus on verse 17 in that passage, the prohibition about that one tree that you couldn't eat from. But in doing that, we miss verse 16, which says, surely you may eat of every tree in the garden except for this one. God puts his people into this garden full of food. The Bible begins with a feast. You may eat of every tree in the garden. There, Adam and Eve are living in an all-you-can-eat buffet. And, and this isn't like golden corral, which I kind of think is probably evidence of brokenness in the world, not, not the, the, God's goodness in the world, but this is an all-you-can-eat buffet of the very best food, right? And God tells them, eat. One of his first commandments to us as human beings in the Bible is to eat, to enjoy. Now we know that Adam and Eve became obsessed with the one tree that they're told not to eat from, they're tempted and pulled away. They, they wanted to find good and evil for themselves rather than trusting God to reveal to them right and wrong. But because we get so focused on that one tree which God says they are not to eat from, we tend to see in that that God is this cosmic killjoy but, and, and, and forget that he's the master of the feast. He's prepared a garden full of food for them to enjoy for them to enjoy with one another, to enjoy with him and his presence, to commune with one another. The Bible begins the world full of food and the command to enjoy the eating of it. Because the creation of the world is a pretty significant event. And so, of course, there's a meal to be shared. Every significant event comes with a meal. And Jesus gives us 
this meal so that we won't forget, so that we won't forget God's goodness. You see, because God did not make a world, He didn't design a world in which we would be constantly frustrated, feeling empty, not satisfied. He created a world and invited us to feast with Him, to know Him, to be satisfied in Him, to commune with Him in a garden over a meal. So every time you sit down to a meal, remember. Remember that God made you for Himself. That he made a world full of goodness and beauty and delight, and he's inviting you to the table. He's inviting you to himself. Every meal we eat, alone with other people, whether it's in the car and fast food or at a wedding, it's a little reminder that God has made us for himself. Maybe this morning you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian but you probably still have had these moments of experiencing joy and satisfaction and, and longing we, that come when we experience an amazing meal or a beautiful sunset or a transcendent piece of music. And, and for me, those are some of the most compelling reasons to believe that, that God exists and that He's made us for Himself because these moments, they we just can't seem to escape the fact that they mean something to us. So, for example, when, when I feed our cats, uh, I mean, they're satiated by the food I give them, I think. They seem to like it, and they at least leave me alone uh, after I've, I've fed them. But I don't get the sense, I'm not inside their, their little minds, but I don't get the sense that that meal really means anything to them, that they're, they're communing together, the three of them, around their, their food bowls, that they, they reflect on that later and say, wow, that was such a great time, and wasn't it good that we got to eat that together? But for us as human beings, we, we just can't seem to escape the sense that these moments of beauty and joy and delight in life mean something, that they're, that they're real, that they aren't just about getting calories into bodies that evolve by accident and will go unnoticed into the universe that will slowly die out and never be remembered. Even if we think that that is intellectually the position we have to believe, even if intellectually you hold to the fact that we're just highly evolved animals with no more significant than an ant or a cat or a grain of sand, I would guess that if you're honest with yourself, you can't escape sometimes still feeling that you matter, that life matters, that it means something. Every meal is an invitation, an invitation to remember, an invitation to come, to know the God who made you, who longs for you to know him, longs to rescue you. Take, eat. But we don't just need communion to remember. We need communion because, because we're isolated. And we're isolated because there is a betrayer at the table. There is a betrayer at the table. The sobering truth is that that heart of betrayal lives in each and every one of us. It's you, it's me. I also think that if you reflect on your life long enough, you find that 
It's you who constantly is ruining things in your life, making people upset, not keeping your promises. There's a heart of a betrayer in each and every one of us. Listen how Matthew continues the story back in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 20. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said to them, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, is it I, Lord? Jesus answered, he who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better if he, for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, you have said so. See, every single one of the disciples, when Jesus says this, is sorrowful. They, they wonder, could it, could it be me? Surely not. I mean, that's the implication. Actually, other translations kind of bring out this nuance a little bit more of, of the way that the question's asked in the original language. It, it expects a, ne- a negative answer. They're, they're shocked that it, that, could, that it could be any one of them. Surely not betrayal in this group. Uh, kind of a more nuanced translation of this is, is surely not I, Lord. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, surely not I, Lord. But there was betrayal there. But the story of a betrayer at the table goes back way before this moment. The story of betrayal began back in the garden, began in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve betray God, when they turn their backs and when they abandon Him, when they rebel against Him, when they break the covenant, the relationship that they had with Him. They eat of the fruit that they are told not to eat of. And in doing so, they say that they would rather be in charge. They would rather make their own decisions, try to be happy by themselves, rather than to enjoy God and the world that He has made. And isolation is the result Betrayal always leads to isolation. Adam and Eve, as we read the story, um, they they are isolated immediately from one another. They hide from one another. They're ashamed. They hide from God. They avoid Him. They, They run from Him when He comes to them. And Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. And every one of their offspring, including me, including you, now carries within us this heart of betrayal that turns away from God, that prefers our own way. But God is going to heal that betrayal. And the paradigmatic, the the most significant, the, the framework for how he's doing that has a meal wrapped up right in the midst of it. This is where the Passover meal comes in. You see, a long time after Adam and Eve rebelled, God chose a couple. Adam and, or excuse me, not Adam, Abraham and Sarah. And he made a promise to them that he would build a new people, a new family, starting with them. 
And that from this new family, this new people would come a savior, a rescuer, one who would set everything right, one who would finally rid his people's hearts of this streak of betrayal that just continued to cling and couldn't seem to be broken. But there comes a morning, a moment in the story of Abraham and Sarah where it looks like God's promise has failed to them. Yes, Abraham's tiny little family has become hundreds of people. It's become a great nation after hundreds of years. But now those people, they're entrapped. They're enslaved in the land of Egypt. They're not in the land that God has promised them. They're oppressed. It seems like God's promises are not being fulfilled. So what is God going to do? he's going to rescue them. He's going to free them from Egypt in one night. And at the heart of this deliverance, at the heart of this rescue, is the Passover meal. You see, the night that Israel was to escape Egypt, the night that they were to be taken out of the land, death would pass over. And death would cling the firstborn of every creature in the land. Because every single person has this heart of betrayal. No, no one is guiltless. But God provides a way of escape, a way of rescue. He instructs his people to sacrifice a lamb. They spread some of the lamb's blood on the doorposts of their home. That sacrifice, the shed blood of that lamb, was God's provision and his protection for his people. They sacrifice the lamb and then they prepare the meal of the lamb. And in Israel's history, the Passover, the deliverance from Egypt, this event becomes the picture, the paradigm, the framework, which all of the Old Testament keeps pointing back to about when God rescues his people, this is what it looks like. Jesus steps right into the heart of the story in this upper room, in this communion moment, and he says, that story is about me. It's always been about me. It's always been pointing to me. All over the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. The Passover pointed to Jesus, the true Lamb who would shed his blood. You see, communion draws us back into relationship with God and and he provides the meal. He provides the sacrifice. We, you, simply receive We don't have to do anything to earn it. We don't have to accomplish any of the work on our own. We can't. He does it all. And then he simply offers us himself. And he says, take, eat. Which is one of the reasons why we don't restrict the age at which children can receive communion at Christ's community. If you're a parent and you sense that your, your child, to the best of their sort of developmental ability, has an affection for Jesus and has a sense of the love that, that he has for them, they're welcome to receive. I mean, you, you know your child far better than, than any of us as, as your pastors. You know when they're ready for that moment. Because here's the deal, ultimately receiving communion isn't just about intellectually apprehending what's happening in that moment. Because at one level we can't ever plumb the depths of that. Theologians have written thousands and thousands of, of pages about what's going on in this communion moment. It's not ultimately just about having this intellectual apprehension of what's happening in that moment. It's, it's about taking and receiving and obeying and loving Jesus. Stephen C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Oxford, Don, Cambridge professor, 
um, after he discusses the meaning of the Lord's Supper in his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, he reminds us of this. He says, the command after all was take, eat, not take, understand. We want to understand. We want to comprehend. But Christianity is not in the final analysis, merely about knowing facts or truths about the Bible or about God. It's about falling in love with and obeying a person, the person of Jesus. It's not just about getting information or being able to explain something, but about falling deeply in love with a person. The communion meal is a picture of the rescue that reunites us from our isolation from God, but it also frees us from our isolation from one another. It reunites us into a people, this people that God has been building. A while ago, the Atlantic Monthly published a story about the importance of food and eating in multiple realms of life, but in particular to unity. And what the author of the story points out is fascinating. Listen to what he writes here. He says, in her book, Eating Together, Alice Julier argues that dining together can radically shift people's perspectives. It reduces people's perceptions of inequity, and diners tend to view those of different races, genders, and socioeconomic backgrounds as more equal than they would in other social scenarios. There's something about sharing a meal with someone at a table It's an equalizer. This is just what sociologists have discovered. And and this is what Paul has in mind when he writes in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, when he warns Christians about taking communion in an unworthy manner. And if you happen to have grown up in church or maybe been around church, maybe you've heard that passage or even heard it used around celebration of communion to examine yourselves, make sure you're not taking communion in an unworthy manner. And, and often, I think, our, our reflection on that, I know I had this kind of perception, is that, well, it means if, I, if I've done something really bad that, that week, and, and I don't know if I'm right with God yet, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't come. But that understanding of what Paul's saying, it, it, while it, it completely misses both the meaning of communion and the context of what Paul is actually talking about in that text. It, it misses the meaning of communion because communion is a meal for sick, sick people who are in desperate need of forgiveness. Communion is not a meal for perfect people who have it all together, who haven't sinned. Communion is a meal for sinners. It's a place to come and experience afresh the good news of the gospel, the forgiveness of sin. That's why it's here. You don't have to get your act together to come to communion. You come because you don't have your act together. That's why it exists. And what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians when he mentions the unworthy manner is the reality that in Corinth when you look at the context of the, of the text, what he's talking about is that the, the rich people and the poor people were segmenting off from one another. The rich people could get there earlier at the celebration of the feast. They would eat a meal together and they'd celebrate communion. It was a big meal. But the rich people who didn't have to work as late would come first and they wouldn't leave any food for the poor people. They just got the leftovers. And so they had turned communion, a moment that was supposed to be about God unifying his people, about removing isolation, and they made it a symbol of socioeconomic division in their, communi- in their community. And Paul says that's taking communion in an unworthy manner. You can't do it that way. This is supposed to be a moment of unity in the church, not one of, of division and separation, certainly not along socioeconomic lines. 
It's part of the reason why we take communion in groups here at Christ Community. So we gather in groups of, of six or even eight people around the server and take it together because the gospel, when it comes and when it begins to bear fruit, it creates a community. It's never just about individuals alone being saved by themselves. It, God's always making a people for himself. It's a picture of the unity of the table that Jesus creates. You're always invited to that table. We also need communion to believe the invitation. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that the invitation from Jesus, that you're always invited to come to him. You're always invited to receive at his table. It's a hard invitation to believe, and it's hard to believe for a lot of reasons, but it's especially hard to believe because we live in a world where there are lots of places where regularly not everyone is invited, where people are excluded for one reason or other, that our tables can tend to be very different than Jesus' table in that way, that we tend to define ourselves by who we aren't rather than by whose we belong to or whose we are, that we're not those people, we're not like them. In fact, it was the radical inclusivity of Jesus' table that was one of the things that people hated about him the most. Earlier in Matthew chapter 9, if you've been with us, even though we've been in Matthew for a long time, um, this was a while ago, way back in Matthew chapter 9, but we see this. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, those were religious leaders of Israel, saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, as people, we tend to fall into one of two categories when it comes to communion, when it comes to the good news of the gospel. Either we think we don't need the table We think that we're well, we think we aren't sick, we don't need a doctor, or we think that we will never be invited to the table. We're too sick, we're too far beyond help. And here's the thing, both irreligious and religious people find themselves in both of those camps. Let me me explain what I mean. There are religious people and irreligious people who think that they are totally fine and they don't need any help whatsoever. Religious people who think, I've kept enough rules, I've been faithful to God enough that he uh, owes me a good life. The communion, if anything, is just another practice that I do to check off that I've, God, I've done what you've told me to do. You better hold up your end of the bargain and give me a good life. And also, there's, there's lots of irreligious people who are kind of in the same, it's framed differently, right? But they're in the same kind of a place that who think, I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not a sinner. I'm not broken. I don't need help. I don't need a meal. I don't need some cosmic deity to forgive me of anything. I'm, I'm fine. So either we think we don't need the table, whether we're religious or irreligious, or on the other side, there are also religious people and irreligious people who, who feel this, this crushing burden of guilt, of never being able to live up, never being able to keep all the rules, a sense of despair at ever being able to please God. Maybe if you're more of an irreligious person, it's just this sense of emptiness. Since I've just made too many mistakes to ever really be welcome in a place like a church. But here's what the communion meal says to 
each person every single week. It says this to you. Not, not just the person next to you, not the, not the person behind you or the person in front of you, but it says it to you. It says you are invited to the table. You are in desperate need, but you're never too far gone, no matter what you've done. And that's why even though it can be awkward, we celebrate communion every week because every week we need to be reminded of the invitation. And, and every week we have people here, you may be one of them this morning, who say, you know what, I just, I don't have enough information to believe this invitation yet. Um, I've had a bad experience with church before and I don't know if I can really trust the Jesus that I've been exposed to. And that's Okay. We say every week, we're so glad you're here. You don't have to come yet. And yet we do it every week because we want to say, come. When you're ready, when you can believe the invitation, come. Because we believe that every single week there's an opportunity for you to experience afresh the good news of the gospel, to hear the great story. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for three minutes or for 30 years, we never get beyond the gospel. We only ever go deeper into it. We need the constant reminder of the communion meal. Don't ever think that you're too far gone or that you're so far advanced that you don't need this meal. See, even Jesus, or even Judas is at the table with Jesus, right? Peter is sitting at the table He's going to deny, in just hours from now, he's going to deny Jesus three times. All of the disciples sitting there eating this meal with Jesus are going to flee and abandon him. Knowing all of that, Jesus, he, he knows that's going to happen. He's sitting at the table knowing that in just a few hours, Judas will betray him, Peter will deny him, the disciples will flee and abandon him. Knowing all those things, yet we still find verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, at the table there is forgiveness, and there is a new covenant. Jesus is providing the meal of forgiveness for the very people who are going to abandon, betray, and deny him. That's why the meal exists. It's a, it's a new covenant. And a covenant is simply a way of that God, an arrangement that God set up of relating to his people. And way back in the Old Testament, there was a promise that a new covenant, a better covenant, an everlasting covenant was coming. One that would really finally transform people's hearts and free them from that streak of betrayal, remove them, restore them. And Jesus says, here, this moment, in this meal, the new covenant has arrived. This thing that the entire Old Testament has been pointing to, longing for, anticipating, has come in me. And in this meal, there is a new covenant. This is, just listen to this, this is how the prophet Jeremiah, one of God's kind of spokespeople from way back in the Old Testament, described, speaking for God, this promise of a new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That was the way of talking about God's people, Judah, Israel. 
not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This metaphor of God being the husband to his people who is the bride is one of the ways that the Bible regularly describes this relationship, this covenant of marriage. Even though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each say to his brother saying, know the Lord. Which means I guess at that point I'm going to be out of a job because that's my work is saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. That's another word for sin. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, this new covenant that Jesus implements with this meal provides a new and better way of relating to God that frees us from sin and transforms us into people who can love him supremely and others sacrificially, which was something the old covenant could never do. And so finally, we need the new covenant. We need communion to anticipate This meal that Jesus shares with his disciples is often referred to as the Last Supper. Because it's the last meal that Jesus eats before he goes to his death on the cross. But in another way, this is the first supper, the first meal of a new creation reality that has come in part with Jesus' arrival, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and will come fully when Jesus comes again. And so when we celebrate this, we do it, yes, as a remembrance of the Last Supper, but also as an anticipation, a foretaste of the great feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb that's coming at the end of all time, when the world will be restored, when the law will be written on our hearts, when we will be God's people and He will be our God fully and without barrier And Jesus says, I tell you, this is verse 29, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Then in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation is the final book of the Bible. 19 is almost one of the very final chapters of the book. We've gone from Genesis to Revelation. We find these words. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We celebrate communion, and when we do so, we remember the last supper and joyfully anticipate the new supper of new creation that is coming. See, everyone is invited to Jesus' table. Not everyone comes. Not everyone accepts the invitation. Not everyone is willing to say, gosh, I'm a a desperate, broken sinner in need of forgiveness. Not everyone comes, but everyone is invited Have you come to Jesus? Have you accepted his invitation? Will you come? Will you take and eat? Receive by faith the forgiveness of your sins that's symbolized in this meal that we celebrate together. Jesus is inviting you. He longs for you to come. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you that you have, uh, in your goodness and brilliance, made us people who are not just disembodied brains or minds, but that you've given us bodies and that you've given us food to enjoy, and that when you do something significant, you give us a meal that the whole of us, our whole person can receive from. I pray now as we prepare to come to the communion table together that you would in fresh ways allow us to experience your goodness and your grace and your mercy in this time. In Jesus' name.